electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange today, and here's what's ahead. Earnings season isn't exactly clearing things up for the markets. It's making things murkier. Xerox says they're no longer expecting a second-half inflection point as COVID spreads. We'll have the very latest and the impact for investors. Speaking of earnings, there was one name that beat and raised guidance, Pfizer. They also announced a late-stage trial for a potential COVID vaccine. We'll speak exclusively with the CEO straight ahead. Plus, old cars, new paint, and free food for coins. It's all ahead in rapid fire today, but we begin with the markets. Dom Chu here with the numbers. Yes, ma'am. We are just a little bit on the negative side today. You can see here the major indices off by just marginal amounts. The Dow Industrial is down about one-third of 1%, 85 points at the lows today. We were down 195, not that much in the grand scheme of things. Still, though, the S&P 500 just about flat and the Nasdaq composite off one quarter of 1%. By the way, the pullback over the last couple days for the Dow and the S&P, just about 1% to 2% over the last four trading days. Now, take a look at this particular theme we're watching. First of all, advanced micro devices is a stock you want to watch today after the closing bell. It reports earnings. It's been a part of the red-hot semiconductor industry. Advanced micro, since the COVID lows, is now up roughly 85% during that span. Meanwhile, the ETF that tracks the whole industry is up about 68%. So again, some big moves for semiconductors. We'll see whether or not those moves are justified when AMD reports after the bell. And then the stock of the day, at least for the Dow Industrials, 3M. It comes out with disappointing earnings and revenues. It doesn't give guidance because of COVID-19. Its shares are off about 4%. It's worth roughly about 45 to 50 points to the downside in the Dow today. Still, though, look at that trading range we've been stuck in for 3M. We'll watch to see whether or not any kind of action happens for 3M going into the next quarter, guys. Back over to you, Kelly. All right, Dom, thank you. And as we move deeper into earnings season, the outlook is getting less clear for corporate America. Many businesses have been hoping for a pickup in the second half of the year, but if Xerox is any gauge, even that's now being questioned. In its earnings report this morning, Xerox said the continued uncertainty around the spread and resurgence of the COVID virus has changed our prior expectation for an inflection point following the second quarter. Accordingly, they say we now expect a slower pace of gradual recovery in the second half of the year. Joining me now with their reaction and thoughts on the markets, Neil Hennessy is Chief Investment Officer of Hennessy Funds, and Dave Smith is Chief Investment Officer at Rockland Trust. Great to have you both here. Neil, I'll begin with you. What is your outlook for the back half, or, or is it even possible to have one? Well, I think there is, Kelly. Uh, you have to look at it in terms of how a manager manages other people's money. And this is where an active manager takes difference with an index. Within this coronavirus pandemic that we have, there's a lot of opportunities because what you're looking for is personal traits that are changing. So you look at people that are staying home, remodeling, putting in uh, garden beds, buying appliances, so like a whirlpool. 
or you're looking about people are moving out of the cities because there's no nightlife. You could look at a Toll Brothers. You could look at, for instance, Crown Holding that we talked about a little over a month ago mm -hmm. that makes beer cans. And now there's a shortage of beer cans. And not to be funny here, but an active manager has to think outside the can in order to make the client money in the end game. And that's the difference where we are now. There's a lot of good companies to buy even within this pandemic. Neil, you're confident that you can make those picks and kind of have that longer term view, that that kind of view on how the world's changing and and not just say, no, I'm going to buy a big tech and ride that out because that's that seems to also be a winning formula. Well, Kelly, if you look at big tech, you look at Amazon, uh, Apple, uh, Google, and Microsoft, you just take those four companies, and that is about 12% of the gain in the NASDAQ this year. But more importantly, those four companies would add up to being the third largest stock exchange in the world, the U.S., China, and then those four companies in, in front of Japan. So you just can't buy an index. You have to look and figure out where are we going in the future and who can make money, be it if this pandemic ends or continues to go forward. Right. And on that note, Dave, let me bring you in. I know you guys own Microsoft. You own Facebook. You own Alphabet. Although you also yeah. own a lot of the time at home stocks like Home Depot, Scott's Miracle Grow, and Sherwin-Williams, which is having a nice day. So, you know, why are you comfortable with those tech names? And, you know, what are your thoughts overall on, on how you see the back half of the year shaping up? Yeah, so in the fundamental side of the technology names that we hold, we look at them and say the fundamentals that, they, that they're going through at the moment will persist regardless of kind of what happens with the pandemic. In the meantime, the valuations in the high 20s, low 30s on a price-earnings multiple basis are a premium to the S&P 500 for sure, but they don't trade at multiples of the multiple of the S&P 500 like some of the other FANG stocks do. I would use Netflix and, and Alphabet, excuse me, uh, Amazon as, as examples of that, you know, Amazon trading at over 100 times earnings is, is almost five times the multiple of the S&P 500, and right. it's just very difficult for us to rationalize that. So even sp uh, speaking of the names that you do feel comfortable holding in big tech, as I said, I believe it's Microsoft, Facebook, and Alphabet. We have a big hearing tomorrow. Um, there's going to be do. a lot of regulatory pressure on these companies going forward. For example, if there's pressure on Facebook to spin off Instagram, do you just have to adopt a wait-and-see mode in terms of that, or do you think that there's a way in which you could end up owning all pieces of, of even these broken up companies and still do fine? Yeah, I do think there's a wait and see attitude that you need to take with regard to that. I think the fact that they're having all of the CEOs in simultaneously shows you that this is just beginning. Clearly, each of those companies has a very different competitive dynamic in their operating environment. And so to bring them all in simultaneously to me is kind of a, a, the wrong way to go about it. You should take each one on their own and, and analyze the specific uh, you know, situation with each as it pertains to the competitive situation. But I think it's the beginning of probably a very long period of time where these companies will be in the forefront of the news. In the meantime, the, the fundamentals uh, of, of the companies that we own are in great shape. And we yeah. think the long-term trends coming out of COVID for, uh, the, uh, for example, the digital advertising space is, is very, very good over the intermediate to long term. All right. Before we go, Neil, we're about to have a discussion about what's been going on with the silver and gold prices. Is there anything that's on your mind as you watch those asset classes lift off? Not really. I just I, I sort of look at it as an, an emotional trade. People are looking about how much fiscal stimulus we've had, how much the country's borrowing. Is this going to add to inflation pressure? 
in, in the future. I don't think inflation's on horizon anytime soon. The feds are more worried about deflation than inflation. It could be a trade into the future, but it's going to be a long-term trade. But right now, it's an emotional trade when you get gold going from 1600 to 2000 Oh, yeah. Big, big headline. It, it certainly feels that way. All right, gentlemen, thank you. Uh, Neil Hennessy and Dave Smith, we very much appreciate it today. Thanks and investors yourself. are still chasing gold and silver. Look at gold, as Neil just mentioned, hitting another record, went above $2,000 an ounce. We're just pulling back to about 1942 today. Uh, silver also taking a breather, but platinum, not so much. What's the next stop for gold after this uh, what Neil called emotional move higher. Joining me now is Jeff Kilberg. He's the founder and CEO of KKM Financial and a CNBC contributor. Jeff, how would you describe uh, this recent move higher? And uh, I do think we need to have the inflation discussion. I mean, there's plenty of people out there saying you need to own this because inflation is coming, and that's fine, but it doesn't explain why bond yields are going the opposite way and falling to record lows. Yeah, it's fascinating, Kelly. And I think it's a bit of a delayed reaction. Everyone's talking about the U.S. dollar trading at 93. And remember, the U.S. dollar was at above 103 in the depths of March during the carnage in the equity market. But here we are seeing gold break out. I think the bulls are in control. More importantly, the shorts are on the run. And that's really indicative, Kelly. We look at the volume. Look at the futures. Typically in the month of June, when we saw gold moving around a little bit, we saw a volume of about 200,000 contracts today in the front month future. Today, we're seeing 600,000 front month futures. So that's three times the typical volume. So you are seeing some people covering shorts. But more importantly, I think people realize and look to the month of March, what actually appreciated? What asset class? It wasn't small caps. It wasn't large caps. It wasn't mid caps. It was precious metals. So therefore, I think people are trying to get a bigger allocation moving forward as there's still a lot of anxiety underneath the market. And that's why I think the yeah. move higher gold ultimately signals that people are still anxious and concerned as we come out of this COVID-19 economy. Right. So you say $3,000 an ounce is possible. Uh, we have analysts on our website who are saying 3500 an ounce is possible. Anything's possible, right? But, you know, at, at what point is this just becoming a mania as opposed to something grounded in reality? Again, we look back to the last time the gold price was near these levels. It was about 2012, 2013. There was no inflation on the horizon then. Well, and Kelly, I don't think there's any inflation on the horizon now. The Fed maybe wants us to talk about inflation, but there's no inflation. What's really interesting, the Fed is in their meeting right now this week. But what did they articulate last time? They articulated the fact that they're not even thinking about thinking of raising interest rates till 2022. Therefore, that inflation conversation, we have to put that way out on the horizon. But what is interesting is the technical component. You look at silver, the higher, higher beta way to play precious metals, it seems there's a lot of room to run nearly up to 30, but short term, maybe not short term, Kelly, but I see $2,500 on the gold target. That's only 28% higher here. And as we know, we saw the last couple of months that volatility and that increase in volume can really move markets higher. But there is a finite supply of gold. Make yeah. no mistake about that. But as you see more and more asset managers look to allocate 3%, 4%, or 5% of a client portfolio, they have to own gold, yep. either GLD, and that goes into the futures market. So gold and silver are both moving higher as long as we don't see any retaliatory actions from other global central bankers because no one's really happy that the U.S. dollar is at 93 outside of the United States. No, I think that's a great, great point. And what's been going on with the dollar is absolutely going to get more attention, like you said, from other nations who aren't too pleased about it. Jeff, thanks. We'll check back in soon. You bet, Kelly. Jeff Kilberg with KKM Financial. We had another bond auction today and another record, this time for the seven-year. Let's head out to Rick Santelli for those results. Rick?
Yes, uh, another record, and I'm not sure if it's a good one, but the, the size of this auction is $44 billion. It's a seven-year, biggest seven-year ever. The yield at the Dutch auction, 0.446, also the lowest yield at an auction, and it was actually a very competitive auction. Best of breed, at a B-, minus. it was the best of the three auctions of $141 billion, and all the metrics were pretty solid. The, the bid to cover was on the weak side, but indirect and direct bidding was solid, and dealers took a smaller amount than normal at 19.3%. So we're done with the supply side, and when it comes to gold, low interest rates take some of the competition away. And remember, it's a Fed meeting. One of the discussions is yield curve control. If ever there was a big reason to start hoarding precious metals, that might be it. That's Kelly, back to you. That's exactly the argument one of these analysts uh, is making with this 3,500 target. Rick, all right, sir, thank you, and a lot to keep an eye on ahead of that Fed decision tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be a big day. Not only are we getting the Fed decision, we have the CEOs of the four biggest tech companies, Jeff Bezos, Tim Cook, Sundar Pichai, and Mark Zuckerberg. They're all testifying in an antitrust hearing tomorrow before Congress. It's the first time Bezos has ever testified on the Hill in this capacity. Deirdre Bosa joins us now uh, with what to listen for. And Deirdre, I, I, I'm fascinated. I cannot wait to see how they handle these questions. It will be quite a show. And Kelly, what they actually say will provide the material for antitrust action against them in the future. So with those stakes, keep in mind, much will be scripted. So the committee then is tasked with asking hard probing questions that go beyond those scripted answers and dig into the size and power that these companies have accumulated. Now, the virtual format and the fact that they're all appearing together but have very different business models and issues will make it even trickier. So let's go through them. Zuckerberg, he should expect a grilling on Facebook's privacy practices and acquisition of Instagram, among other things. Sundar Pichai, he will face questions about how Google promotes its own products over rivals in search results. For Tim Cook, Scrutiny will focus on the App Store commission structure. We've been talking about that a lot in recent weeks. Jeff Bezos, as Kelly mentioned, his first ever appearance in Congress. He will have to explain Amazon's relationship with third-party merchants and its own private label products. The big question that has been debated ever since the hearing was announced, will tomorrow simply be performative theater, or will it lead to reform and potentially a reshaping of the digital market, Kelly? Back to you. You know, I'm glad you put your finger on, on that very point. And we always watch to see, you know, how the executives handle it. And do they say anything that then opens them up to kind of public criticism that leads to regulation? But do you think the questioners have in mind a specific outcome already that they're trying to use their testimony to get at? Or is this more exploratory? I think there's a range. You have some on the committee who have talked about breaking up big tech. There's others who say they simply want to regulate. Um, but to the point where perhaps this is all performative and there may not be real change, I think that um, a lot of that will be come out tomorrow. However, you look back to bank regulation, the breakup of big tobacco, and you can see that there could be some very, very important implications to come out of this. Even if the CEOs don't slip up, they don't give away too much. I think even for us as viewers and consumers watching them all testify together will have really important implications and show just how big and powerful they've become. Yeah, and it's amazing how resilient the stocks are. We'll see if tomorrow changes anything in that regard. Deirdre, thanks. Deirdre Bosa. Coming up, shares of Pfizer are leading the Dow as they beat on earnings, raise guidance, which they even gave, and announce the start of a late-stage trial of the potential COVID vaccine. We're going to talk about all of that and more in an exclusive interview with the CEO next. Plus, the average age of cars in the U.S. is at an all-time high, and that's good news for a number of stocks. 
We've got the names and we'll tell you why. The Exchange is back right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Shares of Pfizer climbing after reporting better than expected earnings and not just giving guidance, but raising it today. The late stage t- uh, trial of their COVID vaccine is also starting this week. Let's bring in Meg Terrell with more and a very special guest for us. Hi, Meg. Hey, Kelly. Well, Pfizer and its German partner BioNTech yesterday becoming the second companies to kick off the last stage of clinical trials of COVID-19 vaccines before they potentially seek regulatory approval. They're going to enroll up to 30,000 participants in this trial, which started yesterday in the United States, but will include 120 sites globally. And they say if all goes well, they could be seeking regulatory review as soon as October. So joining us now to talk about that and more is the CEO of Pfizer, Albert Borla. Albert, thanks for being with us. I want to start on that timeline question because the timelines you've put out there are faster than anybody else in the field right now. And I want you to just walk us through, if you could, how you get to applying for approval as soon as October, or as you guys said on the call this morning, perhaps even September, if the first participants were just dosed yesterday and they have to get another shot in three weeks. That means you're only following them for about a month, right, before you apply for approval. Just help us understand. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Megan. What a great day it was yesterday when two companies started phase three studies because I wish uh, that a lot of companies will be able to have uh, an effort to bring a vaccine because it's much needed. Um, our estimations are uh, real. And uh, of course, it's difficult to execute, but we have a very, very long experience in executing these long studies. You need to have a meticulous execution to be able to deliver these results. Um, we are going to involve all, all up to 120 uh, uh, sites, as you said, and we expect that we will vaccinate approximately by the end of August already uh, up the vast majority of the 30,000 patients. We have a position the sites in areas that they have uh, severe disease. And then we model how many cases based on the Jock Hopkins uh, database and the CDC's also database on the disease rate in the specific site. Because what we do it is we will vaccinate people and we'll wait to see if they will come with diseases. We believe that with the normal efficacy of the vaccine, we will have uh, uh, results, enough events to demonstrate statistical significant difference uh, by the end of September, beginning of October. The more efficacious the vaccine is, that could come even earlier. Well, help us understand what marker Pfizer is looking for in terms of uh, the efficacy and seeing that this vaccine works that would give you uh, confidence in filing for that regulatory approval. Is it the FDA's guidance of reducing infections by at least half? Absolutely. We are following all the guidelines of the FDA and we have 
a series of primary and secondary endpoints. But the two primary endpoints, it is to see if we reduced the disease and we will measure the disease not only by clinical uh, examination, but also by laboratory tests that we will perform in hospitals for each of the patients that will uh, disease. And uh, the secondary endpoint will be, uh, and that's the first primary endpoint for people that never diseased, but also we'll check for people that diseased and to see if we can block the recurrence of the disease to this population. And of course, there are multiple other secondary endpoints. Hmm. Well, as people are watching these timelines that are faster than anything we've seen before in history, many are concerned about the speed and the ability to ensure safety. Uh, what guarantees can you give that in that amount of time you know that this vaccine is safe? Look, we are going to cut zero corners and the FDA has set very high the bar. And as long as we all follow the FDA bar, and we all are subject to approval by the staff of FDA that they know very well these situations, I think that uh, we can all feel comfortable, and of course other countries, I feel that we can all feel comfortable that we have a vaccine that is safe and effective. It's Kelly here back in studio, Albert. And again, thank you very, very much for joining us. One more question on this timeline. Of course, the whole uh, world is following it very closely. I know you guys have said you're targeting an October approval for this vaccine, but the CDC is saying they want six months of, of efficacy, of safety data. So if you're only starting now, won't that push you uh, past the end of the year? Yeah, you're right. But keep in mind that we have started in the back in end of April, beginning of May, and they are monitoring those patients. And then uh, we will submit all the data that we have at the October, including the follow-up of those patients. And we will continue fo uh, following our patients for safety or any other reasons also to see how durable the response will be for up to two years after the vaccination. So in October, we'll have enough data, I believe, so that FDA can make their mind uh, about uh, providing uh, approval, uh, authorization, or et cetera. So the same with all just to make sure the same is with other regulatory authorities around the world. Yes, absolutely, because it's not obviously everybody's uh, counting on this. So then is your, are you confident that we could have a COVID vaccine uh, for public availability uh, here in the U.S. by the turn of the year? I mean, are we talking January feasibly, you think, or sooner? What, how soon, how quickly can this be brought to market? There are things that we control and things that we don't control. And the thing that we don't control is the result of the study. I don't know if the study will be effective. All the clinical results that I have so far makes me cautiously optimistic. It's a very strong phase B data set that gives you confidence that your phase three could be successful. But you don't know until the end of this phase. What I can control it is if I can have product available by that time. And right now our manufacturing sites all over the world are working very intensively and we are going to produce product at risk. So if the vaccine proves to be safe and effective in the October readout of this phase three trial, we will have product in October, November and December. Fewer doses in October, many more in November, mm -hmm. many more in November, and then we are ramping up all the way to 1.3 billion doses in 2021 and up to 100 million doses this year. One more question. What is your message to people who are reluctant to take this vaccine because of how quickly it's been developed and how much of the public needs it in order for us to get kind of general herd protection, so to speak? 
I understand their concerns, and actually I understand their concerns because there is a lot of political discussion, and there is a lot of discussion in political reasons would drive the approval of these vaccines or not, which I want to assure that that is not going to be the case. I, we, Pfizer, to start with, we are 170 years old company, we will never submit something that we don't feel comfortable that it is safe and effective. And FDA, we all know the integrity of this organization, and I think they will do their job. So. To those people, I say understand their concerns, but they need also to understand that their reluctancy is not affecting only their health, it's affecting the health of others. Because if they will not vaccinate themselves, they will become <clears throat> a weak link that could keep the transmission going. And that's unfortunate. Right. Albert, it's Meg again. You know, you were just talking about politics, and of course, uh, this week, the president, or on Friday, the president signed four executive orders on drug pricing. And in that announcement, he said he had invited executives from the pharmaceutical industry to the White House to discuss pricing. There was then a report from Politico that the drug industry and industry groups refused to send any executives as it would disrupt your work on COVID-19. Uh, did you decline the president's invitation? And, and what's your take on, on those uh, executive orders right now? No, I didn't decline any invitation and I didn't receive any official invitation to go to the White House. But I have to say that uh, I was disappointed. I think uh, that uh, this was not the time and these were very radical uh, positions that uh, the administration took. And uh, right now, our scientists, our manufacturing workers are working tirelessly to find a solution and manufacture a solution for COVID-19. And uh, I want them to worry only about one enemy, which is the virus and time. And to bring now something that will make them worry about their jobs, I think it is, uh, doesn't make sense right now. Well, I want to ask you about that, too. I mean, the industry is doing unprecedented work right now at unprecedented speeds on a vaccine and on therapeutics for COVID-19. But and I know that you see this as a potential opportunity to win back the public's respect. Uh, CNBC and Change Research have been tracking the industry's approval rating over the last few months. And in new data, it actually shows approval for pharma is now down to 9%. So as you are doing this work that we've never seen before, uh, and people are depending on the industry to really save us from this pandemic, what is the industry doing wrong to still be so distrusted by the public? I will tell you, Meg, reputation uh, is lost in buckets, but you can earn it back in drops. Unfortunately, this is how it goes. And I think although we demonstrate through our work and position in this pandemic, the value that we bring to society, we have to keep doing it. And uh, I don't think that we can declare victory just by resolving the COVID-19 crisis. I think we should do that and keep bringing the new phase of this industry, which is a science-based, patient-centric, innovation-centric industry. All right, Albert Borla, thanks for being with us. And we hope you'll keep us posted as this trial goes at, at lightning speed. Thanks again. I keep my fingers crossed, Meg. We all do. <laughs> we do too. Kelly, back to you. Great stuff, Meg. Thank you. Our thanks as well to Albert Bourla for coming on and giving us such a candid and wide-ranging discussion. We hope to have him back soon uh, as we're all very, very hopeful that this vaccine is uh, 
efficable, is that the word, and widely available as soon as possible. Let's turn to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. In San Francisco, roughly 150 firefighters are battling a five-alarm fire that had engulfed several buildings in a warehouse district, sending clouds of smoke all over the city. Gun manufacturer Remington has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection for the second time in just over two years. The filing comes just days after the collapse of talks between the company and the Navajo Nation, which reportedly was considering purchasing Remington's assets. The Perseverance, the Mars rover on top of an Atlas V rocket, moved to a Cape Canaveral launch pad today, bringing it one step closer to Thursday's planned launch. The Perseverance will collect samples and store them for a future rover to take back home to Earth. And football star Patrick Mahomes is now one of the owners of baseball's Kansas City Royals. The 24-year-old Chiefs quarterback recently signed a massive 10-year extension that could pay him as much as $500 million, tied for the biggest deal in sports history. And now we know how he's spending his money. That is the news update this hour. Kelly, I will send it back to you. It all seems sort of circular. You get paid a lot of money, but then you put it back into, you know? Well, he played baseball baseball for a lot of years going yes. through college, and his dad was was in baseball for 11 years. So mm-hmm. it's very close to his heart. Yeah, he's like a lot of these superstars, too. They pick it up. It, it actually very late. Even LeBron, he didn't start playing when he was exactly. super young. Anyway. Exactly. Sue, thank you. We'll you see you in it. an hour. Sue Herrera. Virgin Galactic revealing the cabin interior of its Spaceship Two vehicle today. Space enthusiasts are now able to explore the design and spaceflight experience through augmented reality. Our Morgan Brennan sat down with the company's newly appointed CEO and now chief space officer. Uh, and here's what they had to say about the designs. I had a chance to both peek up into uh, our spaceship and, and see the reviews of the cabin that we're going to unveil. People are going to be blown away. Uh, it is done with such meticulous detail, thinking about the experience that they're going to have. George, as Michael just mentioned, you've, you have been working on this for, for quite some time. Why unveil the interiors now? Well, really, Morgan, this is the sort of the, um, the exciting final stretch of stuff. You know, so right now we're in the spaceport, and as you know, we've debuted the first and the second level of the spaceport. We've actually now finished the third level, which we're going to be unveiling later this year. And the cabin is like another key part of unveiling those final pieces of the customer experience. And I think uh, the world is going to be blown away by what they see. Is the expectation that as you unveil more details about the actual experience and the ride, George, that you're going to see more reservations online due to it? You know, I hope so. Um, You know, we have had uh, good um, feedback on our so-called small step reservation plan. Obviously, we haven't reopened uh, ticket sales yet, but... Um, but we have enabled people to sort of put down a little bit of money to tell us that they would like to go and buy a ticket when we do that. And we've seen, you know, good growth in that. And, and I think we expect to see that each time we do one of these nice events, uh, we get a nice tick up in, in, those, in those metrics. And of course, Virgin Galactic, one of the most popular stocks over the past three to six months. It's up 121 percent still in 2020. It's down just fractionally today. Coming up, trading coins for chicken. Also, cars are getting older and from hotels to clubs. That's all ahead in rapid fire. Rapid fire, she said. Plus, a battle is raging on Capitol Hill on extending the beefed up unemployment benefits. Does it really disincentivize people to go back to work? We'll debate. Stay with us. Thank you. 
people today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. Get your loose change. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here with their takes are Dominic Chu, Siva Modi, and Robert Frank. Welcome one and all. First up, guys, so many earnings to sift through. Sherman Williams, uh, one of them, printing a good picture in their second quarter earnings report. They saw unprecedented demand for DIY paint products. Uh, It's boosting full year sales. They even gave a forecast, guys. They think 2020 will be about the same as 2019. Dom, not a lot of people can say that. Uh, shares are up at 1.6 percent today, moderating that those gains somewhat, though. I mean, this has been a trend that's been in place ever since the COVID-19 pandemic began. We've talked so much about companies like Zoom Video. We've talked about Peloton, about Netflix. But a lot of folks out there who have been trying to use the time to make improvements to their home have been doing so. And Home Depot, Lowe's have been the beneficiary. The products themselves have been a focus as well. It's not just Sherwin-Williams that's doing well here. Look at companies like Masco, which is the parent company of brands like Bear Premium Paint. Mm -hmm. sold at Home Depot, also Delta Faucets. Many of these types of products are getting a lot more demand because of this. So if you are in a situation where you can have the ability to purchase some of these things and spend the resources, this is going to be one of those trends that stays in place, especially if people with financial means, and that's important, with financial means, continue to spend more time at home and develop more resources towards improving. This is my real quick question, Seema and Robert, for your thoughts. When does this trend end? Do we, you know, seem like it, at some point everyone will say, well, I did all the home improvements in 2020 and I don't want to see another can of paint for 10 years. Yeah. And just last week, we learned from Best Buy, Kelly, that more consumers are staying home and therefore trying to maximize that experience by upgrading their electronics, get a yeah. bigger TV or a coffee <laughs> machine. And now we're learning that now people are saying, I don't want to look at a, that white wall. I want to paint it. So I think to your point, maybe it's phase four when people feel like they can start to go outside. They question whether those purchases really make sense. Yeah. Kelly, there's no such thing as done with all your home improvements. It's never done. (laughs) There's always something else that could be better done or that someone else in your house wants to be done. Yeah, that's what all the investors are hoping is that you're right about that. But I'm just saying, I don't even know if it's sustainable. Uh, Next up, if you feel like you're seeing more clunkers on the highway these days, you're not alone. New data from IHS Market shows that 25% of cars are now at least 16 years old. But in my family, that was pretty new. Uh, Let's bring in Phil LeBeau for a little more, Phil, because this is actually a beneficiary for a number of stocks isn't it? Well, it is, Kelly. What we've been seeing for a number of years is that the vehicles on the road, they continue to get older and older. And the latest data from IHS market shows the average age, average age of vehicles on the road in the United States, 11.9 years. That is an all-time high. Even more surprising, 
One out of every four vehicles out there in the United States is at least 16 years old. And COVID-19 is actually going to accelerate this trend because people are driving less, putting fewer miles on their vehicle. And mm. then they're going to say, well, I'll keep it longer. This is good news for a couple of stocks in particular. AutoZone and O'Reilly Automotive. The auto parts retailers have been having really a very nice year. Uh, in fact, you're looking at O'Reilly close to an all-time, if not at an all-time high. AutoZone's not far away. What about the automakers like General Motors? Yeah, these yeah. stocks have really, there's nothing happening for these stocks right now, despite the fact that they're trying as best possible to, to make themselves into a, a growth story. Hey, don't forget, Kelly, tomorrow morning we're going to be talking with Divya Surya Devra, the CFO of General Motors. You do not want to miss that conversation. We'll talk about their Q2 results and her outlook for yeah. the remainder of this year. It's interesting, Robert, because I thought we were going to be a post-car society, you know, and I mean, I, yes, we're driving less, but the trend towards car ownership and, you know, these the length of time that a car can be on the road now, I mean, it just keeps going up. Well, Kelly, I grew up like you. My first car was a 1972 <laughs> Volvo, and that was really old even back then. Uh, but uh, I have a question, you know, the, the age of the cars is going up, but I wonder... If we're driving because we're driving less, whether the miles on the actual cars hasn't really gone up that much. Must, right, Phil? Well, a little bit. They're, they're, they're not going up as much as usual. Look, we're putting fewer miles on the vehicles this year. So the, the percentage of miles that we usually see or the number of miles we usually see, which, depending on the person, is between 12 and 16,000, it's probably going to be closer to nine or 10,000 this year. And the great thing, Phil, is once they get old enough, they become collectibles. <laughs> And they become worth more. <laughs> Should yeah, on to your I don't Volvo. think my old Ford Granada is a collectible. <laughs> yeah, or any of the cars that I drove growing up. <laughs> That's for sure. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau. And if people are driving less, they're also using hotels a lot less. The pandemic has turned the travel and lodging industry upside down. There's a prominent hotelier now looking to get out of the traditional hotel business in favor of private clubs. Hotel stocks have been crushed this year with names like Hyatt, Marriott, and Hilton still down 30 to 40 percent. Robert, tell us about what uh, Mr. Andre Balaz is up to. So Andre Balaz, he owns a Chateau Marmont uh, in Los, uh, Los Angeles. That's a big, fancy, famous hotel there. He owns the Mercer in New York City. He owns a big hotel in London. And his rival here is the Soho Club, which has had huge success. They actually just raised $100 million during the pandemic to get a $2 billion valuation. And that's a club model where they have rooms. They also have um, pools, restaurants, bars, places where you can meet up. But the problem is there are a lot of these clubs already, something like 1,000 in the U.S., just with a million or more in revenues. And these clubs haven't done well during the pandemic. You look at Soho House, which has just raised a lot of money. They had to get PPP funding because they really yep. couldn't charge dues. So I don't know that this is a pandemic-proof model, and there's also a lot of competition. What do you think, Seema, about these hotel stocks? Because some of them, like Choice Hotels, they've at least tried to be able to talk to the CEO, Pat Patience, about this, tried to stay open. I mean, anecdotally, hear people who are taking their kids to college or, you know, they have to figure out something to do, some place to stay overnight. But it's still a really, really tough business. Yeah, and I think it just shows how the pressure is really building on these hotel operators to think a bit more creatively about how they use the underlying real estate of these properties with occupancy right now around 45 percent across the u.s well below the average it was at pre-covid which was around 75 percent that's not expected to get back to those levels till perhaps 2022 so in the meantime you have some of these unique examples of developers saying you know what why don't we convert to a private club my question is whether that concept will actually work 
in this new world. Perhaps it shows how Hollywood and celebrities are thinking about ways to maintain their privacy. Uh, but are they having testing at the door? What type of screening will be involved? Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, or is he just hoping to wait it all out, kind of pick it up on the other side? Let's go from highbrow to, well, I would consider Chick-fil-A highbrow, frankly. Uh, and some of their locations are dealing with the national coin shortage by offering free food in exchange for their customers' change. This, to me, this is the story of, like, the week, the month. I, I, the most recent uh, Chick-fil-A, which is offering free food in exchange for your coins because they need coinage so badly, is in Lynchburg, Virginia. They're telling customers that for every $10 in rolled coins they bring in, they're going to get a $10 bill and a gift card for a free chicken sandwich. They saw so much interest online that instead of doing this promotion for four hours, Dom, they're only doing it for two. So this is one of the best stories I've seen in such a long time because it's one of the effects of the COVID pandemic that we aren't talking about and that people are using more money to go out and buy stuff if they are even spending at all. One of the big things I've found is that I went to a bank recently and even the banks are kind of rationing out how yes. much change they give out. Only one roll per customer per visit. One of the other things that's interesting about this is there is a beneficiary of all this, and that is charitable organizations. The reason why I say that <laughs> is many retailers are now asking people to round up their purchases, and whatever that change is goes to a designated charity. So if you are looking for creative ways about how people are trying not to give out change, one of them is to say, hey, if you have a bill for $21.50, hey, just consider donating 50 cents to this particular charity. We'll round it up and we'll pay them out. So hopefully there's a silver lining in this, Kelly. That is super interesting. Kasima, on my app, they ask me a lot of times to round up, but I'm paying, like I'm using Apple Pay or whatever. I mean, there's no, there's no coinage reason for that. Yeah, and I think the shift to a cashless society and contactless payment accelerated, right? During the pandemic, Definitely. I know for one, I'm using more credit cards on purpose because I don't want to be carrying a coin you know, having it fall on the floor and then having to pick it up or mistakenly touch the person who I'm, you know, transacting with. So I think it's really interesting to see, despite that, there are some fast food chains who are saying, hey, bring, our, bring your coins to me. And Robert, I have to say the first time that I learned about this was with the last Fed meeting. Or maybe it was the hearing on Capitol Hill where one of the congressmen said, Jerome Powell was talking about free chicken sandwiches? Yeah, well, not, I love that part. He, he didn't get to quite that, that <laughs> part, but here we are, right? I mean, when it's that bad that Chick-fil-A is offering free food to get coins, I mean, it's it, pretty bad. It's amazing. So setting aside the free sandwich, which is unbelievable, before, when you went to a bank to put all your change into that giant machine that then gave you a money, you would pay at least 10 percent. Yes. And the bank would give you, if you put $10 in change, they would give you that minus 10 percent. And so now you're actually getting the $10 that you put in the machine. So that's and just food. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and a chicken. We talked to the CEO of Coinbase not long ago, and I asked him if he would consider maybe waiving those fees or something. It didn't didn't really seem to take, but if its situation gets more desperate, he might have to. Guys, thank you all. We appreciate it. Dom Chu, Seema Modi, and Robert Frank, and that's why I say round up your loose change. Ahead, muni bonds are having their moment during COVID with inflows of over $15 billion in the last three months. But with the new round of stimulus still hanging in the balance with staggering unemployment and spreading COVID, should investors stay away from the muni market? We'll dive into that. As we head to break, take a look at the shares of the casinos. They're bucking the trend today, moving higher. Win in Melco, the biggest winners. Win is up nearly 5%. We're back in two.
Welcome back. We've seen some surprisingly big moves in muni bond funds. Investors have been purchasing these funds for 11 straight weeks with total net inflows of about $15 billion. As financially troubled states face steep budget shortfalls, Congress is struggling to agree on any COVID relief for local governments. And whether they do or not would seem to have huge implications for the muni market. Here to talk about why investors aren't more deterred is Tom Koslick. He's head of municipal strategy and credit at Hilltop Securities. Tom, it's good to have you back. I mean, it is amazing how much demand there is no matter, the, like I was just saying yesterday, there's not a lot of headlines in the new stimulus bill about relief for state and local governments. So people are piling into munis anyway. Well, I think that the the uh, the Heels Act and the comparison to the Heroes Act is an, is important to um, look at. But as you were mentioning, there has been a significant amount of flows into muni funds over the last couple of weeks, and we just just we saw a uh, just last week. We finally went net positive for the year. There was a significant amount of flows out of muni funds back in March. But as you mentioned, that um, ramp up over the last couple of weeks has really helped. Why is it? Is it just that the yield is too attractive for people to ignore in this like terrible uh, rate environment? Um, do they just think, hey, there's no way they're actually going to really stop paying their bills because the federal government will come in and do something? I think that, I think that part of it is the value of the tax exemption. I think that part of it is also the fact that uh, there is, there, you know, there are a lot of municipal entities uh, across all sectors, state, local governments, airports that uh, had very good um, fiscal positions going into this. Yeah, which helps, of course, gives you a little bit more to draw upon. So let's talk about some of those places. You mentioned airports, but another one hot button issue. Let's talk about toll roads, what kind of mm -hmm. status they're in, whether we should expect more and more toll roads as uh, places look to raise revenue. Yeah, I think that when you're looking at the revenue sectors like airports or toll roads, toll roads specifically, I think that you really need to get into the, in, you know, the, the situation that the individual credit is um, dealing with. There are some toll roads that, as you would imagine, I mean, there are people driving less like you were talking about in your previous segment. But there are, one of the things that's also happening is there's also a rise in commercial activity in some areas. And I think that um, while that commercial activity might not be exactly where it was, you know, a year ago uh, this month, that commercial activity has helped sustain those types of roads also. And I know that you think there are some places where people can look uh, for munis that have been a little less impacted by COVID. I'm surprised that water and electric utility uh, are among them. I would have thought that people might have been struggling to make those ends meet. Well, yeah, the fact of the matter is, is that, I mean, it is important to talk about the uh, potential aid for state and local governments. But I think that uh, where those sectors are concerned, the sectors that we have stable outlooks on, outlooks on still, our water and sewer, the electric utilities, and also uh, the state and local housing, state and local housing finance agencies. Uh, those are sectors that, are, that have been, and we expect to be less affected by uh, what's happening with COVID. Um, but that being said, that Heals Act only included about uh, 100 billion for school districts and did not include anything for states. And I think that that's going to be important going forward for the sector. All right. So you'd like to see that increase for people to really breathe easy? Absolutely. I think that for something, some kind of meaningful. Uh, aid, I think, is going to be around the 500 billion mark, uh, which uh, we'll have to see how things. Uh, there's a you know a deadline of you know next Friday, so we're going to have to see how that shakes out over the next two weeks. Yeah, we will be watching with close interest, as all these investors will be as well. Tom, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Thanks very much. Tom Koslick with Hilltop Securities. Still ahead, it's an ongoing battle among economists and lawmakers. Are enhanced unemployment benefits keeping people from going back to work? 
We've got the results of a new study that's going to try to provide some answers. Tomorrow, don't miss Boeing CEO Dennis Calhoun in an exclusive interview at 9 a.m. Eastern time right here on CNBC. The exchange is back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. Senate Republicans unveiling their new proposed relief bill, which tackles a $600 per week unemployment benefit that expired Friday. The bill extends the program through September, but cuts the benefit to about $200 a week. My next guest testified before Congress on this issue just last week, saying it would be a mistake for the government to continue supplementing unemployment benefits this way. With us now is Stephen Davis. He's professor of economics at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. He's also an advisor to the Congressional Budget Office, and it's good to have you back. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. It's great to be back. There's been a piling up of studies that uh, run counter to your findings. There's a study by Yale economists finding no evidence of people who lost their job or choosing to stay unemployed. They say workers facing uh, larger unemployment expansions appear to be quicker to return to work uh, than others, not slower. We had Ernie Tedeschi from Evercore ISI on last week. They did a study. They found no evidence that the generosity has held back job finding. so to me, the, the problem with all of these differing results is it suggests that it's political, that, that people are just going to come to the conclusions they want to come to. <laughs> well, that's probably true. Um, <laughs> economist studies are often in service of uh, uh, whatever the politicians want to do anyway. So tell me why you think and what your findings say uh, points to there being a real disincentive for people to return to work even if, would you say that's true, even if it's $200 and not $600? Yeah, the, the, the disincentives are less. But let, I, I want to make a comment about the study. But before I, before I do that, I just want to apply a little bit of common sense. And even economists are allowed to use common sense. <laughs> so I, I just imagine my 10-year-old self approaching my parents and saying, you know, why don't you try to pay me 200 bucks a week to not clean my bedroom? You know, we don't have any studies on this question. Maybe you might be surprised. Maybe you might find that I actually clean my bedroom. I think after chuckling, my, my parents would have told me, nice try, but we don't really need a study to understand that there's a disincentive effect in play. Now, if I could go to the Yale study, which I think is an interesting study, but it's very important to understand its limitations. That's a study about the recall of temporarily laid off workers. And those workers, when they're recalled, are legally obligated to take the, to go back to their job or they lose the uh, unemployment benefits that they would otherwise be entitled to, not just the 600 bucks, but the whole thing. That's very different than the situation facing a person who's permanently lost their job and is thinking about how hard do I want to search for another job? Uh, do I want to take one that I know might be available? It also doesn't speak to the uh, incentives or the challenges facing employers who, in creating new jobs, not recalling workers' old jobs, but in creating new jobs, need to compete against uh, the prevailing level of unemployment benefits. Those latter two things, dealing with permanent job loss, providing employers uh, incentives to create new job losses, those will be increasingly important relative to recalls of temporary layoffs as we go forward in the coming months. Yeah, and we, we only have a couple of seconds left, but it, you know, it seems to me that if you abruptly stop this payment and nothing comes back in the wake, there'd be bad economic disruption as a result of that, no? Yeah, look, I do, I do favor income relief programs, um, but there are many ways to provide income relief that doesn't destroy the financial returns to work. 
Um, and I think that's what we ought to be focused on. And I do not think the $600 unemployment uh, benefit supplement does a very good job of targeting those families yeah. that are most in need. Yeah, and we've talked about maybe incentives to go back to work, and that could be a part of this bill as well as it continues to get hammered out. Stephen Davis, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. From the thank University you. of Chicago Booth School of Business. That does it for us today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.